forever. Dog. Just between us. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and very excited that Bachelor in Paradise is back, baby. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and gunkle. Explain. A gay uncle. Oh, I'd never heard I, that term. A gunkle is a gay uncle. Can I tell you? So Mal and I are gunkles uh, to a baby named Harper who's here right now. That's why if you hear any noise, it's Harper. And we moved into this neighborhood. And the realtor was like, oh, there's two other gay guys who live in this neighborhood. And we, so I invented this whole thing in my mind where I was like, their names are Damon and Rodrigo. They go on vacation in Cabo. They live this, I made up this whole thing. Then we finally asked her, what are the gay guys' names? Guess. Gabby and Mal. That would be amazing. But no, (laughs) their names are Jeff and Jeff. (laughs) I love that for them. Shout out to Jeff and Jeff. Our new neighbors. Do you think that's so confusing? Yes, it has to be. <laughs> and and I love that neither one of them have conceded to being Jeffrey. Both yeah. of them were like, we met as Jeff and we are Jeff. What about Jeffy? <laughs> no, they won't. I don't no, think. No, but maybe nobody's pitched them Jeffy. Yeah, I'll pitch it when I meet them. <laughs> I'll be like, by the way. Also, weirdly, I went on a tour of Graceland with my family. I will not be taking questions at this time. And my, the tour guide was uh, said, oh, my daughter's Gabrielle, which is my full name. I said, oh, that's so weird. Then later she said, my other daughter, Mal. And I was like, what? Her kids are named Gabby and Mal. Whoa. Isn't that weird? So did you keep in touch? Are you going to keep in touch? <laughs> I did. And I just said, my partner's name is Mal. Then it was like, that's really bizarre. Wow. Mal said it's not that weird because they're both French names. So I was like, oh, maybe she just like, you know, wanted to name her both of her kids something French. But I was like, that is really weird. What if it's your two souls reincarnated before you even died? I hope our two souls are reincarnated in Jeff and Jeff. (laughs) This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games and brutal honesty. I'll get more intel. I'll come Mm -hmm. back and report on Jeff and Jeff. Please do. Yeah, please do. My dad dated a girl named Hillary Raskin, and her sister was named Allison Raskin. And what? And then he said, I'll name my kid Allison Raskin, too? I think it was like my mom gave him like three or four names to pick from, and then he picked Allison, but pretty, pretty suspicious. He thought, I already heard it one time, and it sounded good there, so yeah, I figured, let's nice. just do it. <laughs> I would find it weird to name my kid a name of anyone I've ever known. I, but you have to let that go because you've met uh, that. Like, I know everybody with I've met somebody with almost every name. I know, but I have a lot of associations. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you can name them after like a dead relative. That's mm-hmm. a way to get around that. If I paid you money, would you name a child Allison? Like how much money? 20 bucks and a good story. You know what I would do? I would name a, a, a baby assigned male at birth Allison because I want to give him character. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are. Men named Allison. Yeah, why not? There's men named Ashley's men named Dana. Dana. Uh, yeah. I'm watching the new. I'm. It's not new. It's from 2017. I'm watching Star Trek Discovery, and the lead female character is named Michael. I thought oh. that was cool. 
Do you feel like if you have kids, you would want to give them gender neutral names? I didn't think that consciously, but my grandmother, who I love, uh, who passed away, her name was Lee. So I always, my whole life, after she died when I was 14, I was always like, well, that's great because any kid I have, I'll just name them Lee. And that will, you know, that's male or female or gender neutral or whatever. And then as I got older and into like my own gender identity, I was like, oh, I already had one, you know, like I already was leaning that way. (laughs) But I but like, I'm probably not gonna have kids. But yeah, but I always liked the name Lee, L-E-E. So Mm -hmm. I was like, then that's simple. You give a kid the name Lee, you don't ever have to think about it. You don't ever to think about your kid ever again. They can raise themselves. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we have a great show for you this week. We're going to be having a, a conversation with Monique Tula from the National Harm Reduction Coalition. So that will that will be smart to make up for whatever this was. <laughs> it's a really enlightening and important conversation about an, a, a movement on how to approach substance use. Yeah, it's a topic that Allison has wanted us to talk about for a while. So it's a very good interview. And later we'll be discussing another topic I've wanted to talk about for a while. Nudity. If you're a fan of this show and you've like you've watched the YouTube channel since I assume you were in high school or middle school, whatever you guys write me letters about. Allison's nudity situation is too much. And we'll and I'm sure we're gonna get into it. I'm deeply offended. How that. many how many videos have we done that hang on the crux of your <laughs> desire to be naked at all times? I don't desire to be naked at all times, but I have a lot of thoughts about that we have a harmful view of nudity in this country that isn't serving anybody. Okay, well, let's and get, I'll get into to it that later. later. Oh my God. I'll get to that later. <laughs> I can't wait. Melissa's going to be joining us for that combo, so I'm extra excited. Oh my um, God. But first, we have to answer a listener's question, so you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Amber, unknown. Ooh. I put unknown because Amber didn't provide a location. I'm not here to scold, but I am here to encourage for the sake of the song. (laughs) Put that on a mug. (laughs) Okay. Hi, Allison and Gabby. I really enjoy hearing your thoughts on how to break up with someone thoughtfully and generally about communication and relationships. Correct me if I'm misinterpreting, but the idea I've sort of taken away is this. It's generally better to share something with your partner while you're feeling it and see if there's any way you can work on it rather than bring it up out of nowhere in a month and suddenly end the relationship. TLDR, what about those things that feel too mean or like rejections? What if it amounts to saying, I don't really like you? I enjoy when our fans write these emails that are like so direct. Like the person who was like, how do I tell my friends that being friends with them after high school is not on the table for me at all? At like, all. I just enjoy <laughs> the, the I, I like when it's not harsh, but I, I do enjoy the way our fans talk sometimes. They cut to the chase. Yeah. Sometimes I worry that my partner and I have different values, which is maybe a nice way of saying I feel like he is a bad person. 
I am not American or Catholic, and he is both, and sometimes these grate on me. He is also a lot more careerist than I am. I find it hard to talk about politics with him or the fancy things he does at his job, fancy dinners, etc., because I can't extend him the benefit of the doubt I would extend, for example, my best friend or my mom. We were talking about the war in Afghanistan, and I became sort of judgy when he said he thought it was fair enough for the U.S. to invade in the first place. I would have been more open-minded if someone else I know had shared this with me, but it made me want to cry when he said it. I felt ashamed of him, like he is a bad person, like we disagree on something important. When he goes to fancy work dinners, I think he seems privileged. If my mom goes to a fancy dinner, I'm like, oh my God, you deserve this, because I know she isn't that privileged. But I'm not sure if I really believe he is a bad person or whether we disagree about anything important to me at all or if distance just makes me grow grumpy and cynical and feel lonely. But how can I say to him, hey, I've been worrying that maybe you're a bad privileged person. I've been feeling like you're arrogant and self-absorbed and you like things that I find morally wrong. Like, where are we meant to go from there? Won't this just upset him and maybe make him less trusting of me permanently? I'm worried that he would feel rejected and break up with me, and then I would miss him terribly and feel so silly for imagining him as this awful person. But that means I undersell my feelings and can't explain exactly what is hard about the times. About half the time, we live in different cities. I end up just telling him he feels distant or something, rather than I feel irritated and disgusted and ashamed. Side note. What is wrong with me if I keep worrying he is a bad person politically? Why can't I trust him slash give him the benefit of the doubt? And broadly, how can you tell your partner what is bothering you when it amounts to I don't like you or I'm worried I don't love you? Thanks and much love. Okay, what is up with the emails that we are getting from, I'm going to say largely women, who think that they are in the wrong for a thing... (laughs) That they are not in the wrong for. Like, what? Okay. Well, if hold you, on. No, no, no. If you, no. If, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at Amber's boyfriend. It feels L- like you're mad at me. <laughs> no, listen. Because she spends 99% of this email berating herself for having judgment. Like, she is upset at herself for being like, I didn't like when a man said a disgusting political thing to me. Like, the framing of this is all wrong. It's warped. It's like, the whole email is her being like, well, you know, he said this thing that was super upsetting. How can I not upset him by telling him I didn't like that? I think you're seeing it a little too black and white because Amber has the sense that, that if somebody else had said that to her, you know, the only example that that we're given, the only concrete example okay. of what he said is about Afghanistan. And I think that people have a lot of different opinions about that. The fact that he goes to work dinners was another example. But like, as Amber pointed out, like she would be excited for someone else in her life to get to go to but these kinds of dinners. Like it's not the same as mm. other examples where someone is is doing like somebody is saying, I don't believe women should have rights. Like he doesn't no, seem to be that far. But that's where context comes in. That's where context comes in because she, the context is she knows her mother's background. And so she wouldn't begrudge her mother. Whereas like this person clearly comes from a background that she actually is like, I, I have feelings about this. Or like, I, I think there's a different context. If someone drew my friend, who's a, a, a trans woman says something sort of like, 
critical of the queer community. The context of that is different than if like someone else, I, you know, like some other friend of mine who's straight said that, like it, there's, there's context around who is saying these things. So like, if your best friend says that and you have, it doesn't bother you because you understand the context of that person. Whereas like, if this person's your boyfriend, you understand the context of that person. And if it rubs you the wrong way, like it rubs you the wrong way because of because of the context of the whole relationship. It's different relationships. Yes. But I, I think that like, from what Amber is saying, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what this guy is saying. I don't know his beliefs. I don't know if he's a quote unquote bad person. I think that the, that type of framing is, is harmful in and of itself because I think people are morally complex, but the, the bigger question of like, how do you share these thoughts with mm-hmm. your partner? Like, you know, I think that like maybe part of the issue here is that you're only touching on topics that are upsetting to you. Right. So mm-hmm. like, I don't know how that Afghanistan conversation went, but like, did you explore it further than that? Like, did you, you know, did you discuss it where you shared why you disagreed with them? Were you able to understand where he was coming from for that? You know, and so sometimes I think with when it comes to like politics and values and stuff, if you love your partner and if you have this history with your partner, it might be worth just like actually having more of a deep dive into what they actually believe. Yeah. And so like maybe they are misinformed. And maybe if you explained where you're coming from, he would be like, oh, you're right. (laughs) You know, like I think there is maybe this fear here that is keeping you from communicating with him on a deeper level to actually understand who he is and where he's coming from, because I think you're afraid of what you're going to uncover. Yeah. But if you engage in those deeper conversations about this stuff, because obviously politics and values are incredibly important to you. And it seems like something that you want to be aligned with your partner with. So right there, that's a reframing. That's a not, I'm breaking up with you because you're a bad person. That's a, it's important for me to be with somebody who has the same politics and the same values. And I feel like we don't align on that. That's yeah. different than you're bad. <laughs> no, you know? no, I don't, I don't want to say anyone is bad. I'm not talking about bad. I'm talking about Amber is answering her own question in some ways, but also like, she's kind of writing like to me it came across as like she's like am I allowed not to like someone am I allowed not to uh agree with this person am I allowed to I think you're simplifying it because they're in a relationship and so she is recognizing that these that she is sometimes you judge your partner for things you wouldn't judge other people for and I think she's recognizing that she's doing a bit of that and she's trying to get to the root of why am I doing that And I think that the solution is to get a better understanding of who he is and where he's coming from and then make your decision. I disagree. I think she's allowed to have standards. I think like, and I'm not saying you're not, you're not saying she's not allowed to have standards, but like the whole framing of this is that my boyfriend does this, 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 and this, and I don't like it. Am I allowed to not like it? Am I allowed to tell him I don't like it? Am I like, it's just sort of strange to me to be like, yeah, but you have to take into the context. What is the thing that she's saying? He goes to fancy work dinners. That's clearly a part of his job. That's not my politics. boyfriend cheats on me. My partner cheats on me every week and I don't like it. You know, but I got it. But they don't share politics. But I, I don't even understand how how much they've even dove into that. Do you know what I mean? Like even the work dinners, right? Has she I think you can say, what are your thoughts on the fact that like you're, I assume, a white cis man who's going to all these fancy work dinners like do you think that that's 
a good thing or do you feel uncomfortable with your privilege? Like, I think there can be a conversation to be had about how he feels about his privilege. And does he feel entitled to it? Because if that's the case, then yeah, this probably isn't a match. But does he feel uncomfortable with his privilege? But he's just never been able to vocalize that to you. Like, I I don't think that they've had some conversations that are worth having to see if it's a viable relationship. Yeah, I don't really care about him. All that I care about is the way that I'm reading this email, which is that Amber seems to be berating herself for having preferences and judgment and thoughts. And that like, if her boyfriend doesn't agree with her, she wants to cry. And like, she's like, am I a bad person for feeling ashamed of him? Am I a bad person for thinking that we're disagreeing on something important? She's downplaying like, She's like, well, I just disagreed with him about the war in Afghanistan. Like, it's not that important. But like, she's beating herself up and downplaying her own gut feelings or her own things that are making her uncomfortable. Like, I think that that is wrong and twisted. Like, it's just weird to be like, it's like she's gaslighting herself. She's like, maybe what we're disagreeing on isn't even that important. And like, but then you wanted to cry. So it was important. Or like, you know, like she's like, Well, I mean, if I tell him that I don't like these things about him and that he this, this and this like are actually sort of really incompatible with me and like are really bothering me. Won't this upset him? Won't this make him trust me less? And it's like, girl, how did you feel about him? Like you don't like him. He I'm worried he's going to feel rejected. How did you feel when he disagreed with you uh, about something that you find to be a core tenet of of your yourself or how did you feel when you know you you know I just don't it's just a lot of hemming and hawing about his feelings and like maybe I'm just overreacting or you know maybe won't he feel upset won't he feel rejected and it's like girl do you like him don't you feel that a important part of having a partnership is taking into account your partner's feelings this isn't some stranger on the street this is somebody she's in a relationship with and so I think She's not talking about herself. He's hurt her. Why isn't she framing it as like, I, I want- I feel like you are acting as though there was different evidence in this email than what I've read. Like she disagreed about the war of Afghanistan. Okay, that can be frustrating, but- Arrogant and self-absorbed and think and you like things that I find morally wrong. Okay, again, but like, obviously she's in this relationship for a reason. Obviously yeah. there was a reason they were together. I think it's like kind of- emotionally naive to think that she wouldn't take into account his feelings at all. I don't think that makes her a weak person or, a- but she's not taking into her feelings. She's not taking, yes, she is because she sent this email. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? She sent this she's email. She's worried about him though. Have you ever broken up with somebody and not been on some level worried about them? Like, of course you are. This is a complex issue. And I totally get the fears of like, I don't have what I believe to be viable reasons to end this relationship. But I think what what can be helpful is saying, actually, these are viable reasons to end the relationship. There is a different way to frame it so that it is not as hurtful when you tell him. Right. So instead of throwing out things like self-absorbed, you can say we have different priorities. We approach the world in a different way. We have different values. We have different politics. And those are things that I think we are not aligned with. That's a very honest and, and less potentially volatile way to 
approach the conversation about your potential incompatibility and the fact that you might not want to be in this relationship anymore. I'm not saying that she should say these things to him. and I'm not saying he's a bad person and I'm not like the whole email is like, how do I tell him what's bothering me and not this person keeps doing things that bother me. Like, I just think it's a little bit weird, but I just feel like this whole email was her being like, am I allowed to not like this person? And it just seems strange to me. I think it's this person is how do I bring up these issues in a mature way that is also like productive? Because if you say this, your partner, you're a self-absorbed asshole. There's not much to go from there. Obviously, she can't do that. But I just think she she doesn't even think that she's allowed to feel this way. She's obviously considering this stuff. She's bothering to write the email. She wants to approach these issues in their relationship. Like, yeah, you know, she she understands that it's important or else she wouldn't have bothered to write the email. I would just advise her to to think about the framing that she wrote. Okay, And I would advise her to think about the framing of these problems and how do you reframe them in a way that could potentially be more productive when you do talk to him about it. So that it's not as much feeling like you're attacking him, but just, again, checking in, being like, how do you feel about your job? How do you feel about these expensive work dinners? You said this thing about the war that I would like to re—I would like to revisit. I would like to maybe better state my point of view on that. Yeah. Do you, does, that change your, does that change your opinion at all? It doesn't? Why not? Okay, I'm seeing that we view the world differently. That might be yeah. a problem for me. Like that's that I think is a is a more accessible way to access these issues. And then you don't feel the guilt of like I was just a bitch and I just left. Or you just don't like him. You and then you're a bitch and you left. Like I don't know, like I'm sort of like you're absolutely allowed to ultimately make the decision that you don't like him and that you do leave. That's yeah. 100% on the table. I'm just saying I think there are some conversations worth having where you can address this stuff in a more productive way to actually get to know his point of view on things perhaps a little deeper and then you can make your assessment of is this a person I'm aligned with and if not that's valid and I need to move on yeah and maybe I would Amber do stuff like put things in I statements where like I felt like this when or I thought this when because you're not taking into account how you felt I think like why why did this bother you and I think maybe being able to articulate that to him better is something that would help you understand better what you actually want Mm -hmm. all right well we're both got riled up there as usual (laughs) um if you want to submit your international question you can send it to just between us pod at gmail.com that's just between us pod at gmail.com Stick around after the break. We've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Monique Tula. Stay tuned. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. 
Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself, but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before. So I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code just between us for 10% off today. Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I am so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in book of the month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, our guest is Monique Tula, who is the executive director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, Let's just get into the questions to find out more. So I don't want to give away too much, but hello. Thank you so much for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, I've I've really wanted to talk about this topic for a long time. What is harm reduction? Well, let me start with a little bit about our our organization, just to sort of ground it. We are the National Harm Reduction Coalition. We were formed about 25 years ago in response to the unmitigated rise of HIV and AIDS. 
among people who use drugs and in particular people who inject drugs. And so since then, we've been fighting for the rights of people who use drugs to survive and thrive. But we've also trained folks, folks like you, uh, even on how to work with or build relationships with people who use drugs. Because we and the rest of the harm reduction community believe that the opposite of addiction isn't actually abstinence. The opposite of addiction is connection. And that means having healthy relationships with people who don't judge us for our behavior, but love us because of our shared humanity, right? You know, I would say over the past three decades, we've seen a really impressive expansion of harm reduction in primarily public health spaces. So syringe service programs where people can obtain clean syringes and exchange dirty ones to make sure that they're not transmitting any infectious disease um, at syringe service programs or overdose prevention sites or even just naloxone distribution sites. They can get uh, naloxone, which is the antidote to opioid overdoses, medication for opioid use disorder. So drugs like buprenorphine and methadone um, help people through transition out of use to abstinence if that's something that they're interested in. And even things like housing first models. So not requiring people to stop using before they get access to housing, which is a huge issue issue in in the U.S. and in particular in California where I am. Um, So those are all examples of really pragmatic, person-centered harm reduction approaches. And they've been proven time and time again to be really successful at reducing uh, the risk of disease transmission, fatal overdoses and also linking people to treatment and recovery when they're ready. And I guess just the the last thing that I'll say is that harm reduction is more than just a set of public health strategies. It's also a movement for social justice that's built on the belief um, and the respect for people who use drugs. Um, It's a philosophy that demands that we view people as whole, whole human beings who are worthy of dignity and love. And in its highest form, harm reduction shifts power and resources to people who've been most harmed by structural violence and sits right at the intersection of public health and social justice. Yeah, I mean, what are some major misconceptions we have about drug use that is sort of, you know, messed up the way that we have been approaching this issue? Yeah, I get that. I get that question a lot. The bottom line is that drug users are not criminals by nature. Let's like let's just start there. Mm-hmm. Some people who use drugs are are grandmothers, doctors, plumbers, teachers. Some people who use drugs wear suits. Some of us are healers. And the reality is that people have used drugs throughout history. Sometimes we want to feel different than we do every day, right? Mm-hmm. Need a little bit of escape. Sometimes drugs or alcohol are an important component of a spiritual or cultural practice. So say, for example, wine and Catholicism mm-hmm. in some First Nations peyote, right? But whatever the reason, drug use is, is far more complex than any simple morality-based dogma that fuels stigma and dehumanizes people who use drugs. You know, I think we've never really figured out how drugs fit into society despite centuries of people consuming mood-altering substances. And we're really quick to judge 
people regardless of the reasons that they may use. And, you know, one of the primary tenets of harm reduction is people first. So this is about meeting people where they're at. We don't leave them there. And contrary to popular opinion, harm reduction is not singularly focused on making drug use acceptable. Harm reduction is about making people who use drugs acceptable. Is there an element of it where, okay, maybe opioid use, there's a higher chance of overdose. So you would want someone to maybe do a safer drug or like getting people off certain substances, but remaining on others? Is that an element of of it? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, not all drug use is is harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, every drug that you consume is not necessarily going to, to kill you. And so one strategy in harm reduction is showing people how to change up their habits, right? So fentanyl's on the market now, right? Mm-hmm. It's been on the street for, fentanyl's been around for like 20 or 30 years, but not in its current form, right? Um, and so one of the things that has to happen is people need to relearn how to administer whatever it is that they're using if fentanyl happens to be in it, right? So one of the things that we say is assume that fentanyl's going to be in it and adjust or retitrate your dosage, right? So that you're taking, um, um, whatever it is that you're using, you're using in smaller amounts, maybe further apart, make mm-hmm. sure that you've got somebody with you, um, make sure that you have a supply of naloxone. And the other just misnomer related is that fentanyl is often found in like methamphetamine supplies, right? So it's not just people who are using opioids exclusively, um, but it's in other drugs as well. What is like the importance that it, it plays for there to be access to the antidote that I can't pronounce it, but the naloxone. Uh, yeah, the naloxone. Yeah. Like how, how big a part of that is that for this movement? I mean, it's huge, right? I guess we should probably begin with what is an overdose. So um, there's actually two ways that you can overdose, uh, either through opioids or downers or stimulants. So with an opioid-related overdose, the breathing slows down and stops, and then the heart stops. With stimulants, the heart speeds up, body temperature rises, you know, and sometimes that can result in a seizure or heart attack or stroke. And we actually call that overamping rather than overdosing, but for all intents and purposes, um, it's the same basic concept. Drugs in too high a potency can sometimes lead to death. So there's only two things, kind of switching back to opioids, there's only two things that can prevent someone from dying from an opioid overdose, respiration support or rescue breathing, or naloxone. And naloxone is a medication that literally reverses an opioid overdose. So rescue breathing may not always be a sure thing, right? But when administered soon enough and correctly, naloxone will prevent an overdose fatality. There are some precautions around naloxone. You might have to administer it more than once to stop the overdose. And it does wear off generally in about an hour. So if there are particularly high levels of opioids, the person could actually overdose again. And then the other thing is that naloxone causes people to go into withdrawal. Um, which is super unpleasant for the person on the receiving end. It's legal. So it's a non-scheduled prescription medication. It has no potential for abuse. 
using it without having opioids in, in your system is like injecting water into your body. There aren't any contraindications with other medications, and it works 100% of the time if the person's heart is still beating. It's wow. cheap, and it should be widely available. Um, and I say should be because there's currently a national shortage of a specific manufacturer's generic injectable naloxone. Lots of p- people who are working on solutions, but for now, there's um, very little access to the country's least expensive form of naloxone. I wanted to back up a little bit because I think if somebody has never heard of of harm reduction, they would be very jarred by the first minute of what we talked about. (laughs) Like, what are you up against? Because I feel like you're up against like every media portrayal ever of a drug addict, like every way in which we view sobriety, you're up against capitalism, you're up against productivity culture. I mean, like, what are you guys facing to even like be talked about seriously? I mean, the truth is that abstinence is simply not the answer for everyone. Yeah. Drug policy in this country has always been tied to morality, where abstinence is the ultimate goal. And, you know, this is, archaic thinking that's rooted in Victorian values and religious dogma that says that abstinence and chastity will keep us off of the road to perdition, Uh right? Like we can pray our way out of what is for sometimes a lifetime of traumatic interpersonal or structural factors that, you know, can sometimes lead to chaotic substance use in the first place. When I get asked that question, I tell a story about my dad. Like, because I want people to consider why someone uses or continues to use despite their lives sometimes being destroyed by chaotic drug use. So my dad, you know, lived his entire life battling depression and anxiety. And we never called it that because we don't talk about that kind of stuff in the black community. At least, you know, not things are, the culture's changing now. Um, but back in the day, you don't put your business out on the street, right? So he had crippling depression and anxiety and he used alcohol and other drugs, heroin and crack to like mitigate, right? What he was feeling inside. And he had like very few periods in his life where he was able to really manage, if ever, manage the crushing shame of who he believed that he was because he used drugs and he drank, right? He never, he didn't want to lose his job. He didn't want to lose his family, although those things happened. He never wanted to serve time, although that happened, right? But somehow he believed that he deserved all of that. My father never completely found a way to uh, overcome what he viewed as his moral failings and lack of control over his own life. Horatio Algiers, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know? He believed what everyone told him. He believed his own egoic mind that told him that he was a drug addict, that didn't deserve to be loved because he lacked faith. He often separated himself from us when he was in the height of chaotic use. He was ashamed to come around and for good reason, because we often judged judged him, right, for being drunk or high. You know, what drama was he going to bring to the house? And it really wasn't until, you know, the final days of his short life that he found forgiveness, you know, from his family and, and hopefully for himself. But I say all of that, like there's a 2015 TED talk by this British author, Johan Hari, um, and he talks about what he believes to be the cause of addiction, any kind of addiction. He, according to uh, Hari, he says 
like I said earlier, the opposite, the cause of addiction is the lack of human connection. So he says, human beings, I have this written down, human beings have a natural and innate need to bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we will bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, you'll bond with something that will give you some sense of relief because that's our nature. So Hari believes that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. It's actually connection. Mm, I love that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how much you can speak to like the brain of it all, but I'm in a program for clinical psychology. So we've talked a bit about, you know, substance use and what that does to the brain. And we watched this one video that sort of just explained that like when you use it, it can change your brain chemistry to make you feel like your number one need to survive is that drug. And like, that is something that people don't quite understand that like it changes your brain chemistry where mm -hmm. you're being told this is what I need to survive. And that's a really hard thing to just be like, nah, I'll just ignore that and, and go completely sober. Right. So I think about, so, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist, you know, but I'm thinking about how, if someone is your, is in your life as an addict, how can you best help? And so if you don't mind, I'm just going to answer that question now. Um, because I think it relates to what you're talking about. So stigma, right? There's, it's really not easy to overcome uh, a lifetime of stigma that has been compounded by intergenerational and collective trauma, misguided social policies like the war on drugs. So I just want to talk a little bit about the impact of stigma on substance users for a moment. So in the Oxford Dictionary, stigma is defined as a mark of disgrace that's associated with you know, a particular kind of um, person or circumstance or quality. And social stigma is this disapproval or discrimination against somebody that's based on perceived characteristics, right, that distinguish them from the rest of society. So social stigma is usually centered around culture, gender, race, socioeconomics, right, class, age, Social stigma is also tied to what people judge as immoral behavior. So for people who use drugs, the outcome of stigma is this series of diminishing returns that keeps them on the outside. So this cycle of drug-related stigma reinforces stereotypes that in turn reinforces expectations that limit what we believe about people who use drugs and what they're capable of doing. And even worse, that cycle reinforces internalized expectations of what they believe about themselves, right? That's why my dad was in that cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, that their own personal agency is diminished every step of the way. So I said this before, you know, like, like us, like all of us, people who use drugs need positive connections with people who won't judge them for their behavior. Belonging and purpose is really what keeps people alive. So to kind of bring it back to what you were saying, Daniel Goldman is this guy that wrote emotional, this book called Emotional Intelligence, probably heard of it. And he talked about amygdala hijack. So the amygdala is part of your limbic system. It's one of the oldest parts of your brain. And it's the thing that sort of governs fight, flight, or freeze. And so he talks about an amygdala hijack as this phenomenon where our responses to a situation is often out of measure with the actual stimulus 
because it's triggered in our brains a much more significant emotional threat. So like Mm -hmm. if your brain tells you the tiger's in the room, then the tiger's in the room and your body's going to respond like there's a tiger in the room, right? Mm -hmm. So again, you know, we're sort of operating from this, the oldest part of our, our brains and that rules our reactions without the benefit of logic or reason. So our bodies still have this, you know, respond with biological changes that prepares for action, even though there isn't an actual threat. So people with PTSD show greater amygdala activation. And so, you know, hand in hand, they have like increased emotional responses like really intense fear or anxiety. And I'm sure you're, you're learning and know that people with other anxiety disorders like social anxiety disorder or panic disorders might also respond more strongly in their amygdala. But, you know, like we experience so much stress in our everyday lives. And so even without a diagnosis, chronic stress can also lead to overactive fear and anxiety in our brains. When that happens, they say (laughs) that it can reduce the functions of other areas in our brain that actually help inhibit fear, like the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex, right? So learning some of these basic biological functions really helped me understand why my dad and other people in my family and people that I love and even me, right, use drugs. We're Mm self-soothing, you know, That's, that's part of what we're doing. I'm just having a lot of thoughts because I, I, my father's a a drug addict and an alcoholic and he got sober when I was 17 for the final time. He did it through Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And I, I was sold a sort of story of like, he got completely sober. He did it. He's amazing now. You know, this is like the thing. And then now he leads AA meetings. He works, you know, for sobriety stuff. And so to hear you talk, it makes complete sense. And, you know, I've gone over with him a lot of times, like there were times where he should have been arrested and he wasn't. And I, I've been like, it's because you're white. Like there's so much that I think is normalized or I've just like, you know, accepted as parts of my life or his story and stuff that is sort of very easily coming unspooled as you talk. (laughs) Like very quickly falling apart, which makes like total sense. And, you know, the ways in which like the we glorify the sort of men on Wall Street who are doing cocaine, who are able to make a ton of money. And, you know, how you brought up about your father, the the carceral system relying on this war on drugs. And we had Oleami Aloran on the show a couple of weeks ago who's a public defender talking about the, she called them goofy, which I thought was funny. The goofy, like charges that keep getting brought up on certain people. And it's just kind of making a whole lot of sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Wow. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's so um, moralistic, the idea that everyone should be sober. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not practical. And I'm a grandmother. And a few years ago, not, not that long after I took this job in 2016. My grandson was like maybe five or something. But anyway, we were in the car and he was listening to Post Malone. <laughs> so, you know, that really catchy, like I found myself singing it and then I realized what I was saying. Like I've been, you know, popping pills, feeling like a rock star, right? Or the idea that we can either escape, feel better, 
or have fun if we just pop a pill, right? Like that message is reinforced everywhere, Mm -hmm. everywhere you look. So on one hand, you have this sort of moralistic ideal, this sort of Victorian value of absence. And on the other hand, you have almost all of society, at least in Western culture, right? Telling you to alter your, alter your mood so that you can feel better. Right. Mm-hmm. And with therapy not being accessible to so many people, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people have no choice but to self-soothe. And then yeah. it becomes, you know, I self-soothe with marijuana all the time. And I guarantee that people don't judge me the way they judge other people who mm-hmm. are using different drugs in a different yeah. situation. And like, why? Yeah. Maybe they did. Right. So that tells me like, there are things like something is shifting. Mm-hmm. Well, I know it's not just something is shifting. Like the whole world is changing. Like we are in the midst of a paradigm shift, mm-hmm. right? That we don't know how to react to. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole nother conversation. Well, do you see a future where, where drugs become decriminalized more broadly in America? I mean, I do. I don't know if I'll, you know, if it will happen in my lifetime. And hopefully I'll be around for another 30 years or so. But we already see signs of it, right? Like how many states in the country now have legalized marijuana? I mean, even mm-hmm. even if it's just medical marijuana. But I do, I do think that that's going to happen, yeah. And I think that there are enough really smart, like really savvy people who are fighting for that to make it happen. But ton of the messaging around legalizing marijuana is like, it doesn't kill you. It's not going to hurt you. So like, Mm -hmm. it's hard, like, what if the response, you know, what do you say the response of like, well, but opioids will kill you? Like, that's different. Well, you know, proper use of opioids won't kill you. Mm -hmm. What is your goal? It's whatever the person's goal is. Is that sort of it? Well, so I believe in bodily autonomy, right? So I have the right to make choices about, about my own body, what I put into it, what I take out of it, especially as a woman or, you know, person with like reproductive organs, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't want that right taken away from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It dovetails really obviously with like the way that SNAP benefits and EBT is like, you know, oh, you can only get a certain thing. You shouldn't be getting, you know, like when you're like, oh, don't give money to that unhoused person. They're going to just buy drugs. And it's like, okay, <laughs> Sure. Mm-hmm. And so what? And and you're and you, Steve, are about to go buy marijuana from a store. So look where mm-hmm. we're at. Right. Yeah, I know that y'all were kind of interested in in race as well. And you know, we can't really talk about drugs without talking about you know race and oppression. Um, Absolutely. A few years ago, uh, my organization launched a new North Star statement. It's that the National Harm Reduction Coalition creates spaces for dialogue and action that help heal the harms of racialized drug policies. So that's a lot. But we named racialized drug policies as the nexus of damage and threat to all people who use drugs, regardless of your race, Mm. right, in this country and, and most others, really, because drug policy in this country has never been race neutral. From their origin, drug policy and law enforcement has targeted immigrants, you know, black and brown people, And so, you know, there's been this recent turn toward public health strategies spurred by compassion for the white folks who've gotten caught up in the opioid crisis. So, you know, our shifting responses to drugs and the people who use them have always been intertwined with race. 
and I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, the moment that, that we're in, you know, to consider the intersections of HIV, like infectious disease, HIV, COVID, right? Substance use. Our country is, is literally, or maybe figuratively, on fire. Both. And yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, and so we may be on the brink of true transformation for the first time since the civil rights movement, which begat the feminist movement and the gay rights movement and eventually the HIV movement. And here we are with the harm reduction movement, right? So I talked a little bit about harm reduction, shifting power and resources, but we can't have that conversation without recognizing the fact that there hasn't been a transference of wealth from white people to black and brown people. Right. We can't have that discussion without naming white people's stranglehold on criminal justice, air courts, justice system. Right. Which quite literally played out in the way George Floyd was murdered by a white cop. Mm -hmm. You know, white folks create the laws. They train the armies that are mostly comprised of working class people, poverty, you know, working in poverty class, black and brown and, and white people that enforce the laws that they design. Mm-hmm. The laws that by design target their own brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. right? You know, modern day prisons are just like modern day plantations that, you know, imprison black and brown and poor people, treat them like chattel, commodify their bodies. And, you know, we know that the white people that, that hold these positions of power create the conditions that allow vulnerable, vulnerable people to be pushed to society's you know, bulging margins and and then stay there until they die. And they do this to maintain their privilege and wealth as if it was their birthright, you know, alone. Absolutely. How do we help move this movement forward? Like, is it really important to like, think about how you're talking about substance use just with your group of friends? Like, what are things that we can all be doing to sort of shift the paradigm even more? Oh, I love that question. I struggle with, so words create worlds Mm -hmm. and the words that we choose to use can either perpetuate, you know, stereotypes or, you know, deconstruct them. So I tend to avoid words like clean, associating clean with, you know, not using, right? Because the opposite of clean is what? Dirty, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And even like, it seems, it seems like nominal, but addict, right? Addict has got like all kinds of images, right? Associated with, with an addict. So when I hear people call themselves addicts, you know, I cringe just a little bit inside because there's often so much stigma that's associated with, with that word. But, you know, I think that if I could, you know, leave your audience with just like one, one thing is, I guess it's a little metaphysical, but my belief is that you know, millions of people around the world are awakening to this higher level of consciousness. And with that comes the primacy of unconditional love and forgiveness and this deeper understanding of our interconnectedness, right? To each other, to the planet, to the universe. And through this awakening, if we really tap into it, we can see that harm to one is harm to all of us, harm to each other. You know, sometimes I'm a little cynical, but when I have my Pollyanna pie in the sky hat on, right, (laughs) Uh I believe that we're going to get there, right? We're going to get to that. It's not utopic society that we're all searching for a better place than we are now, somewhere better than we are now. But, you know, we just need to learn how to stop seeing each other as other, 
and remember that interconnectedness. Buddhists believe that we are all one, one and all, that the all melts into a single whole. And the illusion of separation is actually this false impression that we're separate from everyone and everything in the universe. Thich Nhat Hanh says that we're here to awaken from the illusion of separateness. And so these wow. labels that we use, I know I get chills every time I hear that. The labels that we use validate these false impressions. So this illusion of separation allows us to feel superior to each other. And so recognizing that is, is, is powerful and it's a necessary step toward healing. Every moment is an opportunity to let go of that illusion of separation. It's the only way that we broaden our perspectives and I think it's the only way that we heal. That was so beautiful. Wow. That was really beautiful. And mm -hmm. I especially, I love words build worlds. And, mm -hmm. and so what are the right words to be using to talk about this issue moving forward? I think one of the things that I'm proudest of with the harm reduction movement is like changes in the lexicon. So we don't say substance abuse anymore. Um, we say substance use or substance use disorder is something that we help to change. We don't use words like addict. We put people first. So instead of drug user, we say a person who uses drugs. So it's always about the person, right? Not mm -hmm. the not the behavior. But even that is like an important shift. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I always am thinking about language and words and, you know, and sometimes it's hard to know where to look for these changes. So I think it, it's really helpful to to hear from the source that is like making the changes. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, not the source, but, you know, definitely have, you know, been in this community for a really long time. And, you know, I got to say, sometimes I have a love-hate relationship with it, but I, I feel like the changes that we've made um, are contributing to, you know, the rise of a new sort of generation of activists who are going to blow us out of the water, right? Like we thought we were badasses when we were in our 20s and 30s, you know, like harm reduction, live or die. You know, <laughs> I think like I have a lot of hope for where we're, we're heading and have been really impressed by folks who are kind of picking up the harm reduction mantle. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. And, and now I'd like to shift into a very silly game show. <laughs> okay. okay. Are you, are you okay. prepared for a complete tonal shift? Yes. I don't know. We'll see. It'll be okay. jarring. Um, it's jarring <laughs> for all of us. But life is is full of complexities. So. Okay. Oh, yeah. Let's try to. Yeah. Let's try to sell it that way. <laughs> um, so hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. Um, I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you have and then you would just tell me what you would do in that situation there's no real right answers i just decide what i like okay <laughs> which okay. can change on a whim okay so our first game is america's favorite game show would you stay with this cheater oh my god you find out that for one month of your 54 year marriage your partner had an affair when you confront them about it, they admit they only had the affair because their parents were pressuring them to go into politics and they wanted to do something that would prevent them from being a viable candidate. Oh would God. you stay with this cheater? Oh. <laughs> Monique, thoughts? Uh, so like the Buddhist in me is, but we don't belong to each other. 
mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, and so, you know, you're free to make whatever decisions that you do. I don't own your behavior, but I've been in relationships like that and fuck that. No, I would leave. (laughs) It happened 52 years ago. That's dumb. (laughs) Why are they dumb? Okay. Maybe 50. What year is it? Wait, 52 years ago. What year is it now? It's the current year, but you've been in this marriage for 54 years. And so how old am I? 70 something. Yeah, 80. We'll give you your 80. Ugh, that's like hard because then it's like, what am I? I guess, you know what? Then I live an amazing single life and I run for office. <laughs> I'm changing my tune. I'm changing my tune. <laughs> I, I like after 50 years, are you even having sex anymore? You could be. Honestly, if you're a listener who's old and having sex, please write in. <laughs> I'd love to know all about it. Let us know all about it. But my point is like, it's just not on the top of my list. Right, who cares? You know, who but cares? But what about the betrayal? A whole month of an affair. 52 years ago. I think the time frame really does make a difference. If I was in the middle of it, like if it was happening right now, I might feel differently, like super betrayed. And maybe I'll have feelings of betrayal when I'm older after 50 years. But like, I feel like my priorities have changed. And that kind of shit just doesn't matter. I feel like if Mal was like, that happened last year, I'd be like, you're an idiot. And then I would stay. (laughs) Well, that's the right answer. You should stay. But it turns out if they had run for office, they would have one day become president in an alternate universe. But like, is that a good job? I mean, I was going to say, I don't want to be married to somebody who's a president. Yeah. You get it. What do you get? You get a house, you get a free house and then everyone's in your business. Who cares? Everyone's in your business. I don't want that. So they protected both of you. You know, they did what was right for the relationship. That's a nice spin. I like that. Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 14, refuses to clean their room because they say the mess doesn't bother them. Mm -hmm. To see if they mean it, you stop cleaning the entire house and it quickly becomes a huge mess. Are you a terrible parent? You get a lot of bugs, but your teen finally cleans their room. What do we do about the bugs? You got to get like full exterminator because he's just like crawling with bugs. I hate bugs. I hate bugs so much. Okay, but here's the thing. Actually, no, I take it back. Some bugs are fine. I don't like ants. Are there ants? Yes. Okay, I'm I'm going to burn my house to the ground and then, <laughs> because I hate them. Uh, and then um, I'm a bad, I guess I'm a bad parent because I did end up burning my house to the ground. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I know. I just want to change the hypothetical because like it would just never happen in my universe. I would not be a bad parent. I would not. In this hypothetical, if I stopped cleaning the house and they got the message, then no, I wouldn't be a bad parent. Would you say you were an exceptional parent and people should use this trick? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. I mean, there is something to be said for like your kid being like, it doesn't bother me. And if it's not something that's going to give them bugs. No, they were getting bugs too. Oh, they were getting bugs? No, I burned their room. I just burned their room and no other room in the house. It's so weird that there was a fire just in your room where the bugs are. All right. Well, that's a really bad move. But I think people should consider what I'm throwing out here. <laughs> okay, our final game. Is this a date? 
While at the airport, you strike up a conversation with someone who is going to be on your flight. Before you take off, they ask if you can watch their bag while they go to the bathroom because that's how much they already trust you. Is this a date? No, it's not a date. It's like somebody being an idiot and asking someone that they have no idea. Like they don't even have a, no, it's not, there's no, no, no. (laughs) Also, you know, like I come back and the thing is gone because TSA you know, took it because there might be a bomb in it or something like that. Like, it's just a whole right. different world. If you see something, say something. Like, I, you know, I only trust the people around me to not say something if there's right. if there's something in there, right? No. There could be a bomb in there. So not only is it not a date, but when they go to the bathroom, you would report them? <laughs> <laughs> I would probably not report them. I would say, no, I don't want to watch your bag. No, no shade or anything, but I, I just, you've been talking nonstop for 30 minutes and you would refuse to watch their bag while they went to the bathroom. I would say I don't feel comfortable. All right. But that's, but then this is why people don't like me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I say weird boundary setting things like that and people don't like it. So maybe I've blown this date, honestly. Yeah, unfortunately, that person was your soulmate. No! And inside the bag was just so much cash because they were so rich. (laughs) Why are they flying with a bag full of cash? Because they can. That's how rich they are. Why are they on a PJ then? Because they care about the environment. That's nice. That's nice of them. Yeah, they're a really great person. so bad. just so bad. Thank you so much for joining us for this wild ride. (laughs) I appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you and the coalition? Yeah, just go to our website. It's www.harmreduction.org. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it and so important. This was so helpful and powerful. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know what? People should also come to our conference. In October of 2022, it's going to be in San Puerto Rico, and anybody can come. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Go to our website, and you'll find out all about it. We'll probably post something um, in the next few months. Amazing. Thank you so much. Back to just between us, it's time for topics. X, 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 baby. Nudity. Why? Melissa, why was this a conversation you wanted to join? Because I hate wearing clothes. As soon as this, <laughs> well, not this, because I have something after this, but as soon as my calls are over for the day, I make it. I sleep naked. I hate just having clothes on. Something I'm very passionate about. <laughs> I don't want to be friends with either of you anymore. (laughs) Why? What do you mean, why? I've literally said, I've told my sisters, like, when I die, I want to be naked in the casting. Like, I want to leave this world the same way I came into it, naked. I love that for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I think I just, like, have real issues with the sexualization of the body. (laughs) That's so different Mm -hmm. from what you're saying. This is Allison's obsession. Because I don't know if I've shared this story, but I went to the dermatologist to get a body check, you know, where they check your whole body to see if 
Mm-hmm. If you have any moles or any growths that need to be removed. And a few years ago, I went and I went to a male dermatologist and he made me keep my bra and underwear on. Mm-hmm. Why? He's supposed he's a fucking doctor. He's supposed to do a full body check. And I was supposed to check for myself if there was anything there. Like we are so afraid of nudity that my own fucking doctor can't look at my naked body because why? Because it would be inappropriate. Like it's so weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. That is weird. But usually when that happens, they offer to have like someone else, like a female nurse come in the room. Well, there was a female nurse in the room. They were like, yeah, keep that. I don't remember if it was both my bra, but there was like a part of me that like he didn't look at because like, why? That's like going to the gynecologist and not taking off your underwear. Not that I wear any, but yeah. Right. And then I recently went to a dermatologist who was a woman. Again, they were like, and here's like the gown. And I was like, am I supposed to take everything off? And they were like, it's up to your comfort level. And I was like, again, like, so now I feel like a freaking weirdo because I want to go full nude because I want my full body check. Yeah. What if I have a mole right on my nip and that's the one they don't catch? And I was like, okay, well, I have to now do this thing where I'm going to be nude in this situation where like, it's clearly my choice. Mm-hmm. And like hope that the doctor doesn't like think that's weird. Yeah, I should. It should just you should just be nude and that should be what's expected. And then when the, the check happened, she went like full on like checking crevices, like checking my <laughs> butt, like, she, you know, and I was like thankful for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. it's a consent thing. Maybe. But I think Allison's larger point is like the sexualization of the body when not doing anything sexual in particular. Right. And like we and by making it this like, quote unquote, choice, we like put the onus on the person to be like, look at my naked body. You know, like there's this thing. (laughs) Yeah, I wear a lot of clothes and I don't I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm the wrong person to talk about this because I have a lot of mixed feelings about my boobs and if they're cumbersome and where they are and what they're doing and all that. So, you know, I don't know. When I first met Mal, they I thought they were a never nude, but they were just trans. So, you know, who knows what? But I do think it is weird that things are so titillated and also what we've decided is titillating, like that female nipples are titillating, but male nipples aren't. It's bizarre what we've chosen to be like sexual. Yeah. And like around being around kids, like my my older niece, like asked me if I was allowed to see John naked. Oh, and like it was this thing of like, well, yeah, but like how to explain that to her and like, do you know what I mean? And like Aww. why I was allowed to see him naked, but other people, are, you know, but like she's clearly not allowed to, you know, like it was just oh, like, I would just be like, oh, because that's my boyfriend. Yeah. I'm like, your partner can see you. But then as you explain it, you're like, that is weird. <laughs> like there is just this thing. And then like, you know, with if I have children, like I want to feel free with nudity Uh around them but then at what age is that no longer appropriate how do you know like there's so much stuff like surrounding this like very complicated thing that like is Uh actually incredibly simple and it's just our bodies I know but I it's also like there's a lot of judgment and like people are very sure I feel like everyone's opinion on nudity they're like very sure that's the right opinion there's also current society standards, right? So like we have, you know, we're living within that. But like I, my issue is that that stuff then seeps into places where it, it really is harmful to like yeah. doctors, like, mm-hmm. you know, teaching kids to be ashamed of their bodies, yeah. you know, like art, the way that people 
talk about like old paintings or like, you know, I saw a, a picture of uh, Michelangelo's David and I didn't actually realize that that statue was so tall. Yeah. I, for some reason, thought it was a small statue, which like I just I've never been to Italy, so I didn't know. So I saw a picture that was like, this is the actual size of Michelangelo's David. And I was like, whoa, that's really tall. And then like the comment section was like big balls or whatever. And I was like, no, like just look at it and be like, wow, that's an amazing sculpture. Like, why do we immediately have to go to like big stone penis? Mm -hmm. Right. It's like an over fixation (sighs) because we've banned it because it's taboo. It's like an over fixation. Yeah. I just think that for me, I just feel like if people were just naked all the time, then it wouldn't be an issue. And I like seeing just like how the human body moves too. The, mm. That sounds weird, but like that's part of it. But, but it's really cool just to see how like muscles and tendons and everything and how skin goes over mm. the certain things as people move. Doesn't matter body shape or whatever. I just enjoy that. It's pretty wild that we evolved to where we are. Yeah. And I don't think there's there's anything sex because it's like people I'm not sexually attracted right. to. Mm. And I just think that we should be naked all the time. If it was socially acceptable, would you walk around naked right now? 100%. But what about if a stick touches you or something or like a bug? That can happen with your clothes on what? too. Gabby, are you afraid of sticks? That's what it sounds like. You live in the woods now. I know, but what if you're naked and you're walking around and it's cold and a stick scratches you? If it's cold, I'm going to put on clothes. But like if it's a comfortable, like I love going to like the Korean spot and I can just Mm -hmm. be who I want to be. And like I can walk around completely naked and no one thinks twice about it. I think people need to chill out. And I'll say that for a a trans reason as well, because like for, for, you know, I, I've spoken to other non-binary people who present differently than me and they've talked about like, you know, they want to go to the spa. They want to go to, you know, nude beaches and stuff, but like other people are such assholes. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole fight at the Korean spa here. Like people protesting outside the Korean spa here a few weeks ago. I heard that that was a setup. Really? This woman came in and she was like, there was a trans woman in the women's side of the spa and I had to look at a penis like flipped out. And then she was like, what are you guys going to do about this to the spa people? And the spa people were like, she's allowed to go on the women. Like she's allowed to go where the women are like, bah. and then they're like, you are allowing this. Blah, blah, blah. Then someone I was talking to someone. They were like, did we ever see who the trans woman was, who she was flipping out about? And they were like, no. And then they were like, I suspect that there was never a trans woman in the spa that because there's this myth that like, oh, trans women are all walking around trying to show their penises, which is like not a thing. So like that there was this whole thing that that woman had actually pretended that there was a trans woman in there so she could flip out so that she could get like a viral video so that the peeps so that she would be like, what are you guys going to do? There's a trans woman in there. And then the spa people did the right thing, which and they said, it's none of our business. Like she can go in the side that she goes in. The woman in the viral video is like, they're allowing this, blah, blah, blah. But like, it's a fake problem because we are so negative about nudity because we are so weird about bodies because we are so binary about bodies. I can't think of a trans woman friend of mine who would feel, com- you know what I mean? Like that's not a thing because they, the spaces aren't safe. Yeah. And so it's like this double-edged sword where it's like the space isn't safe because people have such a raised reaction to nudity, in, you know, any form that isn't like exactly what they think uh, or are familiar with. It's like fear 
mongering. It's like clickbait almost. It's like real life clickbait or something. So then people were like, we should go support this trans woman who wanted to be in the spa. But then it was like, so people were protesting, protesting pro the spa, protesting yeah, against the spa. As far as we know, I don't think that that person existed because for this exact reason, because people would overreact and go bonkers and like try to make it into this whole politicized thing when it's just like a human body and a human body. Well, we've certainly changed your tune on this, huh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Look who's pro nudity now. (laughs) Yeah, you did it all yourself. Yeah, welcome to our side. We love to have you here. (laughs) Wow, I talked myself into it because of transphobia. Damn. Damn. What do we we rate this episode? I rate it two out of one free boobies. Ooh. <laughs> I rate it seven out of six syringe trade-off sites you can find through Harm Reduction Coalition, National Harm Reduction Coalition. And I will rate it 11 out of eight changing your minds. You're so mad. <laughs> naked, naked, naked. Now it's like you better be naked, otherwise you're cis sexist, you jerk. <laughs> we didn't say you did. We never said that. You I said know, that. I did it. I said it to myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, we should do that thing where we where we beg people to leave Apple reviews. Okay, so here's the thing. The more Apple reviews we have, the more likely people are to find the show. Um, if you like the show, I know I have so many podcasts that I like and I go, I like them. And then they say, please leave us a review. And I go, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Don't be like me. I went through, I actually went through and I left reviews for all the shows I like because I understand how important it is as a podcaster myself. So please go and leave a review on Apple and leave five stars and also write a little something. It doesn't have to be long. If it makes us laugh, we'll read it on the show. Yes, 100%. So please do that. And I really, it really does help. And I know every time, every podcast you listen to goes, oh, please leave us a review. But like, I'm serious. I think we're all serious. It's a way to really help and support the content that you like. Even if you're lukewarm on it, just lie and give us a five. Yeah. Thank you to Monique Tula for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash team or our own YouTube channel, youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, and at She Is Not Melissa. Bye! Forever! Yeah.